Welcome to SEMRAO Security. Join us as we take a deep dive into the latest IT security information. Learn about security incidents, techniques, and the latest industry trends. Now, here's your host, Brian Semrau. Brian Semrau. Brian Semrau. Brian Semrau. Brian Semrau. Hey there, I am a full-time digital forensic investigator, where my practice focuses on a variety of privacy and security research. I also run a small information security consulting company called InfoSec Chicago. It has been a little bit since I posted an episode, and that's because I believe it is important to be focusing on unique content, and especially given my busy schedule, finding and cultivating that unique content takes a lot of time. So I don't expect that this is ever going to be a weekly podcast or anything like that, although I do hope to post a little bit more frequently going forward. Today marks the start of the National Cybersecurity Awareness Month, and in honor of that, I wanted to talk a little bit about how I got started in the industry and give some tips for those who are considering the information security industry themselves. My interest in digital forensics goes back to when I was in middle school. I always had an interest and a knack for working with electronics, and I had already been the average audiovisual geek for a few years. So I knew I likely wanted to go into something related to technology, although at the time I didn't necessarily know what. At one point during middle school, a digital forensic investigator at the FBI gave a presentation at a summer activity I was attending that had a spy theme to it. I was absolutely entranced with some of the showy things he was demonstrating, like removing passwords from computers, documents, recovering deleted data, etc., Of course, all of this stuff I can do in my sleep now, but to the 12-year-old me, that was the ultimate test of skill. (laughs) I began diving more and more into the hacker lifestyle, just putzing around with the old computer that my parents let me type up schoolwork on, and I got to use the built-in pinball game on occasionally. (laughs) But other than that, it wasn't connected to the internet, and it didn't really have any games on it, nor did my parents really let me play the console video games that were popular at the time. Part of the reason for the no games rule is that several years earlier, my parents had installed a Carmen Sandiego game on the family computer for me, only to get a malware infection about a month or so later, and then blame it on that game. And of course, they were paranoid of anything I wanted to install for years to come because of that. Yeah, that well-known packaged game that was uh, sealed in the package in a read-only CD-ROM... That was definitely the cause of the malware infection. Never mind the fact that the family computer was connected to the internet, and my dad was constantly installing new games and programs with a tendency to click anything and everything without actually reading it. That tendency couldn't have anything to do with that infection. Of course not. So by the time it made sense for me to be using a computer for school, they got that old desktop that a friend was getting rid of, and it became my toy to play space pinball and minesweeper on, and of course mess with every setting, command, registry key, etc. that I could find. I broke that poor thing so many times, of course, that just meant that I kept learning how to fix what I broke. By the time high school came around, the typical rebellious phase didn't turn to drugs and alcohol. Instead, I was figuring out how to hack my way around the internet filters that my parents had placed to uh, let me use the internet for schoolwork, but not for things like, you know, YouTube, Facebook, Stack Overflow, you know, the the typical teenager stuff. 
<laughs> of course, I was stupid and didn't think to cover my tracks after getting around those filters, so my parents would see that I got around them and then try to make things harder for me to get around, which, of course, only encouraged me more. Because the harder it was, the more the hacker high became once I eventually figured out how to get around it. Hashtag boned. <laughs> By the time I got into my last year of high school, I was convinced that I wanted to do digital forensics for a living. I had already started doing computer repair on the side a few years earlier. My, Of course, at the time, I was only a teenager, so my business was what most in the computer repair industry would call a trunk slammer business. But for high school, it was still better money than I was making teaching rock climbing at the local gym, and I enjoyed helping people with their computers. Instead of studying for the SAT and ACTs, I took reading and writing competency tests at our local community college, COD, and I started my first computer science class. The professor was great. He gave me fantastic career advice, but the class was too basic for me. Quite literally, one of the projects towards the end of the class was writing Hello World in Visual Basic, so talk about basic. <laughs> By this point, I had already been doing some advanced batch scripting and had done a bit of rudimentary .NET and C++ development. So instead of focusing on programming classes, the next semester I took computer repair and networking classes instead. This is where things really started to click, and I poured myself into networking, security, etc., and eventually took two digital forensic classes down the line, uh, along with a few criminal justice classes. The digital forensics classes only further intensified my desire to follow that career path, and by the time I finished the second one, I became the first student at COD to pass the Access Data Certified Examiner Certification. Of course, at that time, I was taking these networking, security, and forensics classes. My gray hat side was starting to intensify. I'm not going to go into a ton of details here, other than just to say that by this time I had learned my lesson about covering my tracks, and I was pretty careful about leaving enough information to where somebody could actually prove it was me. That would have been really hard for them. And that's probably a really good thing for me. <laughs> now, it isn't to say that I was being malicious. I was having fun. But... I still wish I had known about how CFAA, or Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, was worded, and some of the potential consequences much earlier on. These days, while I do look back and laugh at some of the pranks I pulled while hacking around that time, I can only sigh knowing that I'll never be able to top any of those, because these days I'm very, extremely careful to follow Computer Fraud and Abuse Act and stay on the white hat side of ethics these days. After a while, it was time to start thinking about transferring to four-year schools to finish my degree. At COD, I had made a really good friend who was going to be transferring to Illinois Tech a little bit before I was thinking about transferring to a four-year school, and I also knew that one of my favorite professors at COD taught at Illinois Tech as well. I looked into it a bit more and found that they had a fantastic cyber forensics master's program, and one of the faculty teaching there was one of the OGs of the industry quite literally one of the people who would have forgotten more than I will ever know. I figured I would go there for at least the bachelor's degree and see how things went after that. It turns out that Illinois Tech was a really good complement to the experience I had gained at COD. While COD was extremely hands-on and trained students to go straight into a networking job or something of that nature, the program at IIT had a much heavier focus on the theoretical nature of the field. Now, don't get me wrong, that isn't to say that there weren't hands-on experiences at IIT, but hands-on knowledge is only as good as the next firmware version number. As things change and progress in the industry, that knowledge will change and become outdated quickly. Of course, having hands-on experience is extremely important to have as a foundation. Theoretical knowledge helps you stay 
relevant even as things change. So they complement each other well. I remember as I was looking for gen ed classes I could skate by in, (laughs) I noticed a humanities class called Standards-Based Web Development. As I was clicking the register button as fast as I could, I was chuckling to myself, thinking only at a tech school would they make a web development class count as a humanities class. I figured it would be an easy A. Boy, was I wrong. I still got my A in that class, but I had to work for it, and the work was challenging rather than busy work, which of course only helped me to enjoy it more. As I and many others who took that class with this professor would often say, in a good way, after the class was over, Professor Stolle ruined the internet for me. I had lots of professors that I liked and I learned a lot from over the years, but Professor Stolle is certainly one of the more influential on how I approach security. He used web design as a vehicle to teach human-computer interaction, which I believe is absolutely fundamental for anyone in information security to have at least a cursory understanding of. I don't claim to be an expert in human-computer interaction by any means, but a number of human-computer interaction studies, along with my complete lack of faith in humanity that came from working in retail for a few years in early college, those are all fundamental to how I approach, approach security today. Towards the end of my bachelor's program, I had spent a bit more than I would have liked to at the university because I was also working full-time throughout most of my program. I spotted one class that I was fairly sure I didn't need. The class was basically the undergrad program's survey of information security. After all, by this point, I had already passed a number of security certifications and had gained quite a bit of experience in my internship that would uh, have essentially been a security engineer position with a flexible schedule by that point. But they still called it an internship to give me that flexibility. I knew the professor had a good reputation, but I still begged with our department chair to give me credit for that class based on one of my certifications. He declined, stating that there were a handful of things in the class that my certification didn't cover. Plus, he pointed out that the adjunct professor worked in digital forensics, which our department chair knew that that would interest me. I somewhat reluctantly forked over the significant amount of money that was my tuition, and I took that class. I figured I would make the best of it. Even if I did already know a little bit about most of the topics being discussed, maybe I could find new methods of doing something and I already known one way of doing something, or maybe I could use the time to dig a bit deeper into some of the concepts outside of the class. Maybe the professor would be someone I could engage with and learn more about forensics from in a conversation or two outside of what was being focused on in class. It turns out that that professor did make things very interesting and engaging. The class material, of course, was still mostly a review for me, but as I had planned, I learned a few different little tricks that you can pick up along the way when you see how somebody else approaches things. And on the few things that I didn't have as much experience on with, I dug deeper outside of class. One thing I'd played around with in the class was Burp Suite. I'd used OWASP Zap before, which is a competitor to Burp Suite, but it's open source. But I'd really never messed around with Burp Suite. I always thought, why would I use a neutered version of something or pay money for it if there's an open source alternative I could use? Yet, using it in this class, I found that I really did like it compared to Zap. A few weeks later, I saw that Bose had been in the news for spying on people through the Quiet Comfort Headphones Companion app. The allegations that were made just didn't really sit right with me. 
The law firm that filed it, which sounded vaguely familiar, but I wasn't in law school, so it's not like I was paying attention to law firms at the time, was essentially claiming that Bose was gathering information from another app running on the phone and then sending that off to third parties. Well, that didn't really seem plausible to me, because at first they they didn't include any evidence in the complaint either. I happened to have a pair of headphones that they had supposedly tested it with, so I figured this would be a good chance to test out Burp Suite a bit more and intercept traffic from the Bose Connect app. Sure enough, my tests confirmed that the factual allegations of what data the app was sending to third parties was correct. I decided to write up my findings in a report, and on one of the social media posts where Bose was denying the allegations, I simply linked to the report and asked them how they explained it if it wasn't true. On that particular day, it was getting late by this time, and I had to work the next morning, so I went to bed, figuring I was never going to get a response from them anyways. They're just going to ignore me, of course. Well, the next morning, I woke up, and I saw a ton of failover notifications sitting in my email from my web server. It was a pretty small web server, and the failover functionality was pretty much just something I built for fun. This wasn't a critical website in my mind, right? Well, I thought it was weird, but I was also running a little bit late for work, so I ignored it. I got to work figuring I would fix whatever was wrong with failover mechanism the next day. I walk in the door and my coworker that was sitting in the cube next to me says, Oh, hey, I just read your article. <laughs> As it turns out, someone had seen that comment and posted a link to my report on the cybersecurity subreddit, and it had gone viral with close to over a million views overnight. I happened to have my class that night, so I took off from work a little early to get to dinner before the class. As I was waiting for my food, I decided to look into the law firm that filed the lawsuit a little bit more. After all, the name Edelson PC sounded a bit familiar, and I was curious if I knew them from any other cases. I had heard of some of their other cases after I looked on their website, but I didn't really know a lot about them. It's, it was certainly nothing where I would have recognized the law firm's name from. As I was just starting to finish my meal, I took a look at some of the staff profiles they had on their website. After a few scrolls down, there was my professor's picture, with the title, Director of Digital Forensics, staring right back at me. I just about choked on my food that I had left. After all, I had started the introduction to my write-up saying that I didn't really believe the allegations to begin with. That night, Professor Davis walked into the classroom, he exchanged the standard pleasantries with everybody, and then asked if anyone had heard of the Bose privacy lawsuit. A handful of my classmates put their hands up, and I rather sheepishly put my hand up. Professor Davis continued, Well, I know Brian has, because I read his paper on it earlier today. I laughed nervously as he started explaining what the lawsuit was about, and after the class we had a good conversation about what I had published in terms of suggestions he might have in the future about how to approach things and some of the legal strategy they were using in that case. The rest of the semester progressed and was fun. One of my friends taking the class and I had a friendly contest to see who could get the highest score in the class. With each test, we were consistently within 1% of each other, and overall, it was a really fun class, especially with that friendly competition. The semester that followed was my last one for the undergraduate program, and upon graduation, I was expecting a full-time salaried position at the company I had been interning at. It had been pretty set in stone for a while that they wanted me, but a month or two prior, there was a change in leadership, and everyone was watching their budget. So the timing just wasn't the greatest. I began looking at other options while they hem-hawed. During this time, I reached out to Professor Davis, and I asked if I could use him as a reference as I was looking, or if he happened to know of any positions. Which, now that I'm actually 
In a position, I'll admit that that was a thinly veiled way of me asking if he had any openings at his firm, especially since by this time I had figured out that he hired at least one other student from Illinois Tech that I was friends with. He did agree to be a reference and put some feelers out for me at some of his previous companies, but he didn't have any openings at his firm at this time. A few weeks later, I did receive a full-time security engineer offer from the company I had interned at, and I ended up accepting that. I happily helped them transform their security operations even more than I did before, since I was now the first full-time employee that they had hired specifically for security. Eventually, I got a call from Professor Davis. He was asking if I was still looking for a position, as he had one open up at his firm. Even though I wasn't particularly looking at the time, I knew that the work that they were doing at Edelson was right up my alley by combining digital forensics with both privacy and security. After a phone interview, I went to what was without a doubt one of the longest interview schedules I've ever had. And the rest is history. I'm now a full-time investigator at Edelson PC. It has been interesting seeing the differences between the legal community and the IT community, as well as the similarities. Both are very intense industries, but often in very different ways. I recently finished my master's in cyber forensics and security, and I'm beginning to settle down and start looking at helping the future generations of IT and information security professionals meet their goals through mentorship and hopefully in the near future starting as adjunct faculty. So here are some of the recommendations I have if you're looking to get started in information security. First of all, figure out what your passion is within the industry. It's okay if it takes a little bit longer to figure that out. I was lucky in that I knew what I wanted to do from the beginning, but not everyone does, and that's okay. But by finding your passion and moving towards that specifically, you will overcome a lot of the hurdles that can come at you. You'll be more motivated to put in the extra effort and show those around you what sets you apart. And in my experience, when you least expect it, that little bit of extra work makes all the difference. Second, by finding your passion, you are set to figure out your motivation. And I can tell you right now that if your motivation is simply the salary, there are easier ways to make money. Most people who I see who aren't motivated by the work and their passions that go into InfoSec for the money end up working basic help desk or maybe level one SOC analyst jobs for the rest of their career. And those can be very tedious. On the other hand, if you're passionate about the work, the money will naturally come in short order. The other money part to consider is that once you know what your passion is and what motivates you, your path will be much more directed, meaning that you aren't going to be wasting money pursuing classes and certifications that don't interest you as much. The next piece of advice that I have is always be networking. From my experience, a good part of getting your foot in the door in the industry comes from chance and who you know. At least that was the case both when I got my internship, as well as the story I just told that led up to me getting my current job. You never know if the next random person that you meet in your social life, in a class, or even at the bus stop might be your next most valuable contact. COVID has obviously thrown a wrench in being able to network to some extent that we used to be able to, but the events are starting to open up again. So if you feel comfortable meeting in person, now is the time. On the other hand, COVID has also opened some doors for people. If you think you might be interested in relocating or even working remotely since a lot of remote opportunities have opened up recently, then attending online events means that you can expand outside of your local area that you were once somewhat restricted to in terms of networking. The final piece of advice that I have for you is that when you are looking at taking classes and getting degrees and certifications, value your time along with the program cost. It's Very frequently that I see people only considering what the tuitions or fees are and not putting a dollar amount on the time. 
especially as someone progresses through the industry, their time becomes more valuable. So it's important to factor that into the equation. Depending on what you want to do in the industry, a degree may not always be necessary. Always do a cost-benefit analysis. Now, that's not to discourage anyone who wants to do a degree program. Obviously, I believe in higher education since I've spent so much time and money in it, and I'm also looking to work in it for a little bit. I do think that there is value, especially at the community college level, but I've also seen so many of my peers spend over $40,000 a year on tuition only to go work in a completely different field that they really enjoy, but has nothing to do with what they studied. Stick with your passions, find your passions, and find your motivation. You'll be so much better off as you start in this industry. Thank you to everyone who's tuned in and made it this far. If you like this podcast, please like and subscribe to it. Let me know what you thought. I look forward to the next discussion on the information security industry. Until next time, stop, think, connect.